Check, 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 one, two, and we are live from the Dispatches from the Scandamaniac podcast. I am your captain, host, as always, Rylan Johnson. Um, before I get into today's episode, I just wanted to reflect on some things. So, uh, the last episode I had on was with Sam Gamble, and we really nerded out about some affordability policy, some housing, kind of Yellowknife politics, and some of the economic realities of the North. Um, this was by far the most policy, politic-oriented podcast I've had. Um, this may just be a reflection of, you know, I'm currently running for office, so that's what's going on in my life. Um, I think I'm happy about it. I'd like to still... This podcast started from a Northern Mind show, which was a podcast essentially about mental health. And so I covered a lot of those topics uh, in my previous episodes, and I'd like to get back there, but uh, for all my listeners, I think we're going to just carry off on a few episode tangent on a uh, policy. But even more so, this podcast is about just getting to know people and having, you know, this medium of long form conversations. I've read all of Sam Gamble's articles and I've always really liked what he said. And it's this podcast just gave me an opportunity to reach out and, you know, get to know him a little better. And I thought that was a super interesting episode. He he definitely thinks about these things at, you know, a very in-depth policy level that I, I just don't think you're seeing from the GNWT policy wonks. Um, and on that kind of that same note, uh, today my friend Jimmy Thompson is on the podcast. Jimmy, I've read many of your articles, mostly at the Narwhal, and uh, I'm kind of excited to have you on and nerd out about some things. Yeah, thanks for having me on your boat. Yeah, yeah. Can you uh, do us a favor and ring the ship's bell to get us started there, Jimmy? I've been eyeing this thing up. I have no idea how it's going to work. All right. Just smack it. Yeah, oh, I think we... you could do it a little better. Just really... Yeah, that's, oh. that's in the mic. Oh, that's satisfying when you get it right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, Jimmy, can maybe you start with uh, your Yellowknife bio? What are, how long have you been in the north? What have you been doing up here? I was in Hay River before I came to Yellowknife for two years, year and a, well, a year and a half. Um, I was working for CBC there, that's what brought me up north, and uh, I had to get out of Hay River. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I met you when I was still living in Hay River, I met most of the, not most, I met a lot of the people that I know in Yellowknife before I lived in Yellowknife, because um, I was coming up here all the time to get out of the misery of Hay River. Um, <laughs> Just leads in with an attack of Hay River. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, I just, I, I kind of I, I ended up quitting that job just so I could leave that, that place, um, if you want to call it that. And <laughs> wow. then uh, moved up here, and it's been about two years now. So the last, or yeah, two falls ago, I moved to the Knife and basically immediately started working for the Narwhal when I got up here. Yeah. Um, perhaps for our listeners, can you just kind of give a summary of what the Narwhal is? How, how long has the Narwhal also existed? It's pretty new. The Narwhal is a mag or a, a publication that covers Canada's natural environment. Um, it has been around for less than two years, um, a year and a half about, and before that it was known as Desmog Canada. Um, but then it went, it, it separated from the Desmog network rebranded and relaunched as a whole new site that had a new editorial guidelines, new new branding, way new you know, beautiful new website and Oh, I so I didn't even like I I've come across Dsmog. So um, Dsmog blog is the American one and yeah. there's Dsmog UK and oh, okay. Dsmog Canada was separate but in the same sort of network. Yeah. Um and it, the I think 
I mean, I, I don't want to speak for Carol and Emma, the people who actually own and, and, and operate this, this non-profit. Um, Narwhal's a non-profit. Narwhal's a non-profit independent media site, yeah. It's great. Um, but I don't want to speak for them, but I think that you know, the new name really suits the brand and the writing better. It's, it's more open. It's more um, Canadian. <laughs> it's more... Yeah, well, and when, I, when I read DSMOG articles, or just the, the branding in my head is kind of like this ridiculous at times radical environmentalist group whereas i don't get that from the narwhal at all it's like very in-depth balanced reporting yeah it's definitely not radical it's it's um it's radical in, in the sense that we i think um don't necessarily accept the status quo as the basis for for all of our reporting um you know everything that is a change is radical and everything that is the status quo is fine like you would get in a lot of canadian legacy media but um it's yeah it's certainly not not what you think of when you think of of d smog which they do actually really good investigations and stuff as well they do important work but it 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 naturally has sort of a a, a pretty radical beat yeah and i think the well the problem with that is i i know the narwhal kind of crosses a wide spectrum of readership which is you know mm -hmm. if you're writing usually environmental publications you're really just writing to environmentalists and mm -hmm. i the narwhal is is by kind of attacking some of those narratives or reframing them, whatever, um, has reached all sorts of audiences. And you know, you wrote that piece on uh, the slave geological province corridor, and it's like that was talked about by everyone in the mining industry. Like I know that reaches into the mining industry, which a lot of environmental publications don't. Yeah, I think I really pissed off the mining people. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but but then I think that it was a valuable or a valid angle to take, and the National Post and Vancouver Sun followed my angle on that. Yeah. When everyone else was writing about, okay, here's this new money for this new road. It's totally morally neutral and everything's fine. That's what CBC did. That's what, I mean, you know, CBC, like they do really important work. I'm not bashing them, but like they, they sort of took a very neutral approach to it and, or what they thought was a neutral approach to it. And I took what I, what I think is a neutral approach to it, which is to say, here's who benefits and here's who loses from this money. It's not just, a, you can't just say that a road is necessarily a good thing. Yeah, I no, absolutely, and I. There's also this bizarre thing that happens that, like, since you're taking a different angle, people like get all upset, and it's like, what? Isn't this exactly what you want? Like, isn't that the point of the press to like have these different perspectives put on? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I thought you were a little sensationalistic in playing up the China angle, but the the China angle, I think, is 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 important to mention that this isn't just about Canadians. This isn't just about northern miners and you know all these people that we like to think of as our neighbors and our friends benefiting from this road and you know inuit miners that that would suddenly have jobs and things it's it's a lot of foreign companies would benefit from this and a lot of southern companies and southern workers would benefit from this and that's fine but we have to be realistic about who is really benefiting from these these massive infrastructure if it's a 1.6 billion dollar road yeah that's a lot of my money yeah that's going into that your money that's going into that why shouldn't we talk about who actually benefits from it? Yeah, and and that honesty in conversation and in, you know, actually doing the policy work is extremely important because in the North, you know, where we want to make sure that it's employing Northern workers and as much of that royalty money is staying here, you, like, you, you have to start with the facts that, mm -hmm. like, that the majority of this wealth gets sent abroad or to Southern corporations. And look at... Okay, so we've got three operating diamond mines here. Yeah. Everyone talks about how these are the bedrock of our economy, and they probably are. You know, there's a lot of employment, there's a lot of spin-off industry, all this kind of thing. 
How much money, do you know how much money is coming out of the diamond mines every year? Like, approximately? In, in no, I don't want to hazard a guess. Yeah. I, mean. I don't either. But I know it's in the in the billions. Many, many billions of dollars. Hmm. I mean, you know, mining is one-third of our GDP. Yeah. Is what we always say in the North. Um, government. <laughs> mining and government. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And why isn't the NWT, you know, why does the NWT have these crazy high levels of poverty, of domestic abuse, of shitty infrastructure, of, like, crumbling houses in all the communities. Like, why aren't the people in Delanay millionaires? Yeah. If they have three diamond mines in the north. Three diamond mines. Why are we not all rolling in wealth? <laughs> We're not. We are absolutely not rolling in wealth. We're definitely a lot richer than we would be. Yeah. But, like, we have... Pretty substandard healthcare, very substandard education, like some of the worst child poverty rates in the in the developed world, and we have three diamond mines, and there's a hundred thousand people. Can you imagine? Anyway, so that's that's sort of why I like to take this a little bit more of a like, what I would think of as sort of a, um, like it's it's a naive approach. It's saying I don't know anything about this, and. Given the facts that are in front of me, what do I th what do I expect would happen here? Yeah. Um, and here's what's actually happening, and what's the difference between those two things? Um, and you know, the mining people would say that's naive, and it, I think they're right. It is naive because they are all coming at things from a a very established point of view, and I think that's not necessarily the way that we should be thinking about all future policy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And there's also this. I mean. Me, me and Sam were talking about this on the last episode, is that in regards to who's getting the benefit from mining right now, it's disproportionately, you know, Southern corporations, then the GNWT, bureaucrats, and, you know, admittedly a lot of spin-off work, especially in the exploration field, totally. but for actually what we're pulling out of the ground, it's like so little of that money is going to indigenous people who... You know, if the North and this nation-building rhetoric we're seeing in these infrastructure projects is really about sovereignty, like, why isn't the money going to the people who are here establishing the sovereignty, you know? Right. <laughs> and why are Northern workers not the ones getting all of that benefit? And, of course, there's a lot of reasons for that. We don't have a lot of Northern workers. We don't have a lot of people who are willing to do this work. We don't, like... It, there are there are good reasons that it's that a lot of these people are southern workers, but we also have to be honest about how many of our workers are actually here. And I think it's something like fifty yeah, percent of the workers in the mines are here. In Nunavut, it's like seventy percent of the workers are from the south. Yeah, um, that's not good enough. Well, and then those numbers of get tied. Like we love to use GDP as a metric, but GDP is a very misleading it's a metric. Bullshit metric. Yeah. <laughs> if yeah if half of your labor force is fly in, fly out, like a fly in, fly out worker, as we should be viewing every single one of those as a lost job to the North right. instead of a growth to GDP. And, and should, a drain on our resources. You know, yeah. the, that, that person doesn't give anything to the North except for, you know, some payroll taxes. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe they spend 200 bucks on a night of the Explorer on either, either end of their trip. But that's pretty much it. You know, maybe they go to Harley's or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like... No, they don't pay their income tax here. They don't pay their income tax here. They don't put their kids in school here and, and stay, you know, coach the soccer team and, you know, whatever. Like, they, they're not actually part of the North. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, uh, it's like we always talk about, okay, let's open new mines, let's 
increased GDP and there's not like, okay, what about step zero back here, which is makes before we do that, ensure the resource royalty arrangement is set. Let's minimize, you know, fly and fly out workers as much as possible. Yeah. And, and this is, I mean, perhaps you could also talk a bit about this to the kind of the way the mining industry always talks about government needs to support us, you know, like as if it's an industry that, you know, is necessarily that needed to be supported and thereby subsidized. Yeah. The, I mean, the, <laughs> this is, that's, that's the sort of the underlying story behind the slave geological province road is that the mining industry has these spots check, uh, uh, picked out along the, along this proposed road. Mm -hmm. Um, that could make them a lot of money if there was a road. And so they're saying, government, build us a road and we'll go in there and we'll generate economic activity. We'll go in there and we'll build a new mine and we'll keep your economy afloat because we are the only people who can do that and only if you make it economically viable. Why can't you find a mine that is economically viable or build your own damn road? Like, th this, this is a private... It's private gain... So why shouldn't it be private risk? Yeah. You're going to be the ones taking home the billions of dollars from the, from the value of that mine. So why the fuck do I care as the taxpayer whether you have a road to your mine? Like, I, I know that we all benefit in some ways from these things, but like putting $1.6 billion down in the hopes that a few mining companies decide that it's worth their time, probably after negotiating huge tax concessions and low royalty rates... Um, I, I don't think that's worth it. Personally, I don't think that's worth it. And I think that a lot of people don't think that's worth it when they, when those facts are laid out in front of them. Yeah. And I think the, the nail on what the key there is that like, I would support, you know, okay, the mines go, we simply can't have the upfront capital to build a $1.6 billion road government do it for us we will ensure you get that money through back through royalties you know and we'll negotiate those agreements or through tolls or you know there's ways to pay for the road sure in time but what you just said is actually correct is we pay for the road and then they don't even negotiate especially for northern workers and the north like a royalty regime that keeps the money here mm -hmm. they they negotiate tax concessions yeah and, and you know it, an example of 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 government working in collaboration with industry to minimize the upfront cost of something, it would be uh, the diamond mines. With um, with Diavik, there there's several phases of their mining, yeah. And each time they've backfilled and and remediated as they go, instead of saying we're going to put up whatever a billion dollars up front before we start, you know, put a, put a shovel in the ground, and um, that just doesn't make sense for a billion dollars to just be sitting in a in a furlough or whatever you call it, a sort of just sitting in an account for yeah, yeah, for, and, and I mean, they post security and bonds security. and cash. Like, you know, it's, yeah. it barely gains interest. It's like, it's a huge amount of capital just tied up. So. Yeah, and so that's not fair to industry to say we want all of that money up front, but they should be putting up every cent up front that they're going to, that they're actually exposing the taxpayer to. You know, that's what yeah. Giant Mine didn't do, right? Of course, exactly. so now we're all, now we're on the hook for a billion dollars of cleanup because Giant Mine fucked off. Uh, can I keep swearing on your podcast? Yeah, man, it's fine. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, I know you personally, but, uh, <laughs> um, but you know, Giant Mine left us with a billion dollar price tag because they didn't put out put any security. So they should be putting up security as they go. But it's not fair to say you should put it up all before you start. I think that's reasonable. But a road is different, 
And why should we all be putting up $1.6 billion in the vague hope that some hand-wavy arithmetic will work out 50 years down the road and we'll all have made that back? I don't think that's reasonable. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm going to play devil's advocate. There, there are a couple other key factors here. I mean, one were, I mean, the slave geological is not, does not feasible without the Grays Bay Port Project as well. And then we have the first road to Nunavut, which kind of ties into this nation-building rhetoric we like. And a port in the Arctic is also, like, kind of fundamental to northern sovereignty and can change the way the current shipping landscape works and Nunavut works. That's a lot of could. Yes, yes, I know. I've read a lot of documents around the Grays Bay port project and a lot of documents around this road. I have not seen a single economic analysis of what that would mean for Kitikmiut communities, for Nunavut communities generally, for any shipping that isn't just getting minerals out of the ground and moving them to southern Canada or to other ports. Yeah. Uh, uh, like, that's that's one thing, sure. And that's, like, you know, that's increasing shipping through there and increasing risk to those communities and to those landscapes. But it's also potentially, yeah, for sure, maybe maybe Cambridge Bay, which is quite close, would be would benefit from lowered prices. Maybe. But I don't know that, and you don't know that. And I, I until I see a refrigerated truck driving up the Slave Geological Province Road for whatever, five, however many kilometers is it, uh, 400, 500 kilometers. Um, until I see that happen, I, with groceries, late, you know, ready for, for Cambridge Bay, I, I don't really believe it. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the thing is, is like, we're, we don't frame the debate in, I, I get the nation building rhetoric and it, to a large extent, I believe like, you know, if the Canadian state has given up on mega infrastructure projects, like for the sake of uniting the country, it's like, well, that's, that's a bad thing. I mean, I, I as a climate change activist, like, you know, I want to see Canada like take mega infrastructure projects and I like nation building rhetoric. Um, but we, is the road the biggest we can think though? Really? That's the, that's our, that's our grand ambition is to build a 500 kilometer road. But we've missed the whole part of this conversation. That's like, okay, what is this going to do for Canadians? You right. know? Yeah. And which is the odd gap in the, the rhetoric. Yeah. Um, yeah, not to mention it's also an unsettled Acacho territory and the Bathurst caribou population is which you'd be rapidly sp- going extinct. Yeah. You'd be going right through the calving grounds of a, of a, caribou population that's decreased by 98 percent in the yeah, last couple which decades. is you know if there's if we're going to talk about something that's fundamental to you know the indigenous communities up here it's like it's caribou i i mean yeah that's my, the grocery store yeah um and it's funny because i i i feel like hesitant even you know to talk about this like this because it's i i don't necessarily oppose the project i just am annoyed with the like the misleading rhetoric and the lack of like a business case that the GNWT puts forward, you know, mm-hmm. they're kind of the numbers often don't add up. I think that the numbers often add up in the minds of GNWT people when you say it's going to increase mining. That's mm-hmm. that's like it, it, there's I, I mean, I get the sense that there is just a panic happening at the GNWT right now over 10 years from now, all the mines will be gone. And what next? What happens next? You know, maybe there's Fortune Minerals, maybe there's Nico. Maybe there's a couple other sort of uh, mining projects that are on the horizon, but there's no more giant. There's no more giant mine. There's no more diamond mines. There's no more of these massive things that have kept the the north afloat. So, what's going to happen? And I, I don't know. Like I, I I I can feel their pain, but I also don't necessarily think that 
doubling down on mining yet again is necessarily the the golden ticket there. Yeah, and I, I only think it it will be if, you know, something that's completely beyond GNWT control changes, which is, you know, the international commodity prices for, you know. Mm -hmm. And it, there, there's also this other kind of interesting um, fact that I think gets left out is that we actually have some of the largest deposits of lithium, cobalt, rare earth metals, all like absolutely essential uh, in, you know, creating electric solar vehicles. panels and electric vehicles and converting to a green economy. And I think you could, well, it's one of these weird things. If we actually got serious about, you know, converting to electric transportation, those prices will go through the roof and it would be great to be able to mine them in Canada and have access to them, but those prices aren't there yet. So mm -hmm. it's kind of this, I don't know. It's another interesting kind of aspect to this that I, uh, yeah, I did a bit of analysis on that a while ago um, for a piece I did for Up Your Business Magazine, just a short piece. So it's not like I did a lot of in-depth work on that. But the conclusion that, that I saw from a few anal analysts that actually do this for a living was basically that like lithium, for example, you can get it so much cheaper from evaporating salt, you know, briny water in, I think, uh, uh, Jesus, where was it? Argentina and Chile. Mostly. Argentina and Chile, like yeah. That and belt. And yeah, exactly. So it was somewhere else in the Andes, but it was either way. Um, basically, it's way cheaper to do it elsewhere. So Canadian expensive. It's always going to be expensive up here, and it's always going to be cheaper there. <coughs> yeah, that could change. Maybe some. Maybe Australia as well. Maybe Australia uh, will run out of lithium. But I just like it's it's all of our mining up here is always going to be more expensive and it's not just because of roads it's we're far away it's cold it's way too cold we have no workforce like there there's a lot of other reasons and energy you know Tulsa river hydro project maybe maybe that would fix that at the expense of a lot of other things but like there's always these big trade-offs here whereas evaporating lithium from a briny lake in the andes is always going to be cheap yeah anyway Let's move and on. That, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, okay, Jimmy, maybe you can talk a little bit about uh, you are leaving Yellowknife. Um, I am. Why, uh, why are you leaving Yellowknife? I'm leaving Yellowknife. I can't really answer that question. I don't, I don't, like, I don't have a good answer to that question. I'm not leaving Yellowknife so much as I'm going to Victoria. Oh, okay. Like, well. I love Yellowknife. I've been so happy here. Um, even when, even before I moved here, I've loved Yellowknife. As I said, you know, from Hay River, like, I... I was all even actually even before I moved to the north. My dad was an archaeologist his whole career, um, and my parents went on their honeymoon in Yellowknife, actually on an archaeological of dig all places. east wow. of Yellowknife. Yeah, and my dad's been coming up here his whole career. Um, I found in my like just research, I found like reports with his name on them from like I think the Line Twenty One, like the the pipeline, the Enbridge pipeline that leads to the south. Um, he did some of the archaeological archaeological work around Fort Simpson on that. Like I, I don't know. I've just it's it's it feels like home in a in a weird way for a place that is not home at all for me. Um, so yeah, I've, I'm the community here. I've just I've really loved it. I was walking around down uh, Old Town recently and just like looking around at all the people that I I'm not I'm, I'm pointing away from the mic here um, and just looking at all the people. And noticing that I know, like, you know, maybe a third of the people. So not, not it's not like I know everyone. I know, I, I, in that crowd, I knew about a third of the people. 
And I knew, like, how they fit together. I know, I knew, like, what those social webs look like. Who doesn't like who, who likes who, who, you know, used to date or used to be roommates or whatever. Like, you just, you, you have this sense of a social, um, a, a fixed, even though it's very fluid here, but, like, a fixed social structure. You, you, can, you can put your finger on it and you know where you fit. Yeah, absolutely. And that's so rare. And it's something, you know, I used to live in Vancouver. You don't, not, not even a, a iota of that in Vancouver. It's so isolated and so individualistic. And same in Victoria, which I'm, I'm expecting and sort of preparing for. But um, it, it it's a community that feels like, uh, like something out of a storybook or like, you know, a hundred years <laughs> ago. And I, I love that. I really, really love that. I can buy my fish from several people that I know and that I, that I respect and that I like. Um, I'm having friends who, um, who have a, well, Nick, Nikki and Jared, yeah. who have a little catering company cater my, my going away party <laughs> because they're just amazing chefs. And I wanted to like, and, and so I'm trading them photos that I took of them. We're bartering and they're going to give me, you know, tacos in exchange for photos and this kind of thing. And just, it's, I don't know. I hope that I'm able to find it again, but I probably won't be. Anyway, back to why I'm leaving. I'm going to Victoria because uh, my family's there. My brother just had a baby. My uh, my parents are kind of getting older, and I just want to. I want to be a little bit closer to family, um, and just sort of. I I I feel like I've got this sense of having one foot in and one foot out of Yellowknife, and I've had it since I got here. Uh, it's never really felt like my permanent home and I think that for people who 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 are able to say this is my permanent home like I think that's your the case with you 100% jumped in with both feet yeah and you can you're like you're running for MLA you're like you're you're able to say this is the place that I'm going to be I'm going to invest in this place I'm going to understand this place yeah um and I'm going to be part of it and I think that that's something that I haven't really been able to do and I like you know I I've I've tried to start things and be part of things like Makerspace or, um, you know, I've got a small business where I make those little pop-up cards and, yeah. and these things that are, I, th I think that I'm participating in the community, but I'm not investing in the community. And I, I just kind of, um, I, I, I want to find a, I want to find a place that I do feel that way and, and where I can jump in with both feet. Yeah, and what do you, I mean, why do you think that hasn't occurred? Like, what are those barriers there? That's a good question. I think... I mean, because you have a pretty great life. Like, you date the librarian and, you <laughs> you know, you're yeah. pulling cool journalistic work. And like you said, there's all this community. You're, you're a man about town. <laughs> I have a wonderful community here and a wonderful life here. Yeah, and, and my girlfriend is, is the public librarian. You couldn't ask for a more wholesome, like, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, 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 relationship to be in. And everything is... is it's great here. I know a lot of people. It's it's awesome. Um, but I don't know why. You know why when I say like it, it's never felt like home. Why that's the case. Um, partly, I think a lot of it is the cost of living. I, as a guy who gets paid southern wages, you know, I get paid by the narwhal. I get paid for other freelance work, usually by southern publications or at southern rates. Um, I'm paying $2,000 in rent. When I go to the grocery store, it costs about 30% more, 20 or 30% more for yeah. everything. And there's, you know, limited selection on top of that, but that's a different story. Um, you know, when I get my 
car fixed, it costs more, even though JTEC is awesome. Um, <laughs> Amen. <laughs> uh, everything is just more expensive here. And when I want to go visit my family, it costs me $500. When I want to go on a vacation or something, even though I don't do a lot of that, but like if I was going to go on, like when I, Megan and I flew to Croatia last year and the first leg of the trip was almost the same as the rest of the trip, you know, just getting down to Edmonton costs as much as getting to Croatia. Yeah. Uh, it's, I don't get paid the $120,000 that seemingly everyone at the GNWP <laughs> gets paid. Um, I don't get paid the $100,000 that everyone who drives a truck at the mine gets paid. I get paid, you know, I, I think last year, in total, I made about $65,000 or something like that. And that's that's gross pay. That's not that's not after tax. And that's not, you know, a lot of that was input costs, too. So, because I own my own business as a freelancer. So, I, I make about half of what is sort of expected. I can never buy a house here. Um... I, I don't know. It, it it feels like I'm kind of excluded from the northern economy as someone who doesn't work for the government or a mine. That's fair. <clears throat> and I think a lot of people feel that way here. It's it's crazy to me that we have, the, we have like you're on a houseboat. We have people in this little houseboat community and the shack community and stuff. These people who are so self sufficient, so like gritty that they built their own houses on a frozen lake that are off the grid and, and like demand all of their time and attention. These like very individual, not individual, like no, they're it, pretty radically individualist. Well, they're, they're individual, but they're also collective, but they help each other in yeah, a way that, 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 that you know, people over in Niven don't, I'm sure. Um, I'm just bashing everyone, everyone who isn't always, in this room yeah, right now. Exactly. <laughs> anyway. Um, it was just a Wade Carpenter's house. Even, there was a bunch of people there. There are great people there. <laughs> Sean's over there. I think there, this is a, this is like, there's a lot of good people living in it. I'm not saying that. I just think that like the, the neighborhood, the community of the old town and the shacks and the, and the houseboats, th these people are, are, are like scrappy and, and, um, and entrepreneurial in a way. And those people live in the same economy as people who get $120,000 automatically for living in the North and having a BA. And a lot of those people are the same people, you know? <laughs> it's, 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 yeah, it's just a, lot a of, very warped economy, I think. Yeah, well, and there's a lot, yeah, there's a lot of bureaucrats on houseboats, mm -hmm. myself being one of them up Absolutely. until two months ago. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I think this is probably the, the single biggest issue in Yellowknife is that, I mean, it's the service economy and so you are also an interesting example because it's like it's not even that it's anyone who isn't making a hundred and ten thousand dollars a year and wants to come up here and kind of get invested in this community and do interesting things like like you're saying you're starting a small business you're getting involved in makerspace you're teaching workshops and you're writing about the north it's like you're exactly the kind of person that everyone should be we should be aiming to keep here Except for the mining community. <laughs> yeah. <well. laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I I agree with that in principle, that we should have more people up here who want to start things, who are engaged in the community. I don't, you know, I, 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 I in some cases I'm one of them, in some cases I kind of keep to myself and do my own thing. So I don't think, anyway, uh, the thing is, yeah, for sure, you want to have people who, who want to start businesses. You want to have people um, who want to bring different things to the North that aren't just 
working at a JNWT job where maybe they have a lot of work to do and they're doing amazing work, or maybe they show up every day and they have literally nothing to do and try and look busy for three hours a day and then hide the rest of the day, which I know several people yeah. uh, who, have, who have jobs like that where they just, they feel terrible because they are qualified and educated and they're working, they want to work hard and they have nothing to do. Yeah, um, that and, definitely exists. And then there also exists a person who's working twice as hard yes. to cover that slack. And that that happens in your policy shops and it especially happens. I mean, and then there's parts of the GNW like nurses who are just working three times as hard as everyone. <laughs> yeah. And there seems to be like this not equal distribution of actual efficiency amongst yeah. employees. Yeah, those people are all part of the same union. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, during the strike, it just like annoyed me, like, you know, like our nurses and our corrections officers like have such legitimate complaints yeah. and now you look at Stanton and it's just like god so ridiculous working that hospital in a, in a staffing shortage and then like here I am in local one like a GWT <laughs> lawyer making my six figures be like yeah and I want three percent more each year nurses you know it's like why i didn't like we hard-working like, territorial employees me and the nurses we yeah, all need a raise i felt bad like that was that our that was our key ask i'm like well uh, actually i'd like to withdraw my ask and put this nurse in front please yeah no i i don't know there are there are definitely were people who had legitimate legitimate cause for complaint and, and, and needed better working conditions during that potential strike. And there were a lot of people that I'm just looking at like, you? You're <laughs> going to go on strike? I know what you do in a day. Uh, yeah. Or don't do in a day. Um, but, you know, yeah, leaving Yellowknife, um, I think that, like, I, so when I decided to leave Yellowknife, um, I, uh, you know, Megan and I, I shouldn't say, you know, it wasn't, I didn't decide to pick up and leave and, and dragged Megan along with me, you know, she, she and I talked about this a lot and, and, and made it work, um, somehow between us. Um, but when we decided to go, um, I, I, I started thinking a lot about this idea of leaving and, and this kind of guilt that you feel when you leave Yellowknife. And I think I, I, of the people, you know, when I met you, I also met like a dozen other people probably at the same party, you know, all at the same time and half of them are gone. Yeah. Maybe more. Um, and that's just the cycle of Yellowknife. But I think when you leave Yellowknife, it doesn't feel like leaving Vancouver. It doesn't feel like leaving Calgary where it's just kind of like, Oh, I'm going to miss you guys. Like, this is a good way. I found good friends here. This is awesome. And I'll come back and visit. It feels like you're abandoning Yellowknife. Yeah, absolutely. Like you're, you're, uh, everyone is the, are these hardy survivors up here who make it through the eight month long winters in the darkness and they party all March and they <laughs> hibernate all November and they all like there's these very like ritualistic elements of Yellowknife life and you're kind of just piecing out on all that um so I started thinking a lot about that so I, I did this photo series that I've entered in the northern uh far north photo fest yeah. that Pat Kane and and uh, Amanda Anand have started and you know hopefully it's in it's just five photos of people like me who are leaving Yellowknife and thinking about it and, and trying to sort of, uh, um, explore a little bit of that feeling of leaving. Um, like for example, um, my friend, uh, Chris McGee, his partner, Alyssa is a pilot. Yeah, she worked, I know Alyssa. Yeah. Yeah. You know, of course. Um, she left for a job in Calgary because she couldn't find any more work as a pilot up here. She kind of got laid off of her piloting job after she was fully qualified. 
um, because of, of our seasonal and boom and bust. Um, you know, I think she kind of caught the boat, the bottom of both of those waves. Um, she moved to Calgary and her partner is now about to leave as well. And they're, they're, you know, kind of mid, like they're like separated in this, this process, like physically separated in this process. So I got this nice photo of him like sitting lonely in their empty house with their three dogs or their two dogs and their several cats and, and boxes everywhere. And he's just Skyping with her. Um, and Tom and Ariel have left, uh, who are, they, they came up here, Ariel came up for, to advance her career yeah. and she did very successfully, uh, moved through INAC and then eventually decided that she wanted to go back to law school. So she had to leave the North because we don't have a university. Obviously, I mean, we don't have a law school far, far from even having a university, we don't have a law school. Um, and Tom is now leaving as well. He's a pilot and he's going to go down there and, and, and work as well. Um, so we're le losing two brilliant people because they decided they, they, they hit the point where they couldn't really advance anymore. They, they kind of hit a wall in their, in their careers in a sense. Tom has probably could keep going up here, but Ariel had to, had to go. And they, they met when they first got here within, I don't know, a few weeks of getting here. Yeah. And now just before leaving, they got engaged. Yeah. So they kind of, you know, just like a little s section of their story arc kind of happened in Yellowknife. And that's what happens a lot of the time. People like the, a little discrete section of your story arc happens here, but it's, it's fairly rare to see entire stories get played out here. And the people, the lucky people, the people who find that they're able to stay here forever. Um, yeah, you, I think it's really something special when you're, when you're able to commit to Yellowknife and, and find your niche here. And yeah, or you, commit and then you get a government job and then 20 years later you're like oh i've only been a bureaucrat for 20 years you know i meant to start a business 15 years ago well, or, or maybe you find the, at the end of that that time of being a bureaucrat you you've also raised a family and you've yeah, got a great, great place out in and prelude lake and you you know maybe your job Fair. hasn't been the most exciting but also you've had this great life in the north and you there's a lot of ways to live really invested in your community because yeah. i find that's just like standard across the board here it's like you know mm. everyone volunteers at something yeah and everyone kind of has their area of passion and expertise totally which is one of the you know one of the biggest benefits to me of a government job is that like most of them you work nine to five and you can not think about it after five which means you have time to go do other things you know mm -hmm. and as a lawyer in the private sector that's not a luxury you can afford you know you go home and you think about your client who's in jail and you know you go home and these your files come with you so that's mm -hmm. just you can the government ha it will always be there when you come back the, the nothing's moving too quickly so you can check out from it after 5 p.m mm -hmm. or 4 30 you know <laughs> Or whatever it is that you actually check out of your job and the time between then and when you actually leave the office. So one in five. Um, all right. Perhaps you can uh, talk a little bit about... Well, I, I'd like to dissect this more, the Yellowknife community thing. You kind of described it as, you know, living in a <laughs> hundred years ago. Um I, this is one of my favorite things about Yellowknife, and this is probably why I love it. When people tell me why I love Yellowknife, I always tell them it's uh, it shows you kind of a different way of living. You know, especially when I was in Victoria, my peer group was homogenous. You know, we were all in our 20s. We were all, you know, educated. We were all whatever. 
And then in Yellowknife, and, and I think coming along with that is like, oh, I have to grow up a certain way because you see your parents and they all kind of look homogenous too. And then you get to Yellowknife and it's like, oh, you're friends with the Snow King, you know, some 60-year-old <laughs> guy who builds a castle. And you're friends with Sean Buckley who goes out and catches fish and then sells it to you. And like, you know, I, we always say this, like a yellow, it was a true Yellowknife party in the sense that there was like no, you couldn't put a pin on it. You know, it was like... There was a bunch of indigenous people there. There was a bunch of older people there. There was a bunch of younger people there. It's just like, you know, this it's yellow knife reflected. Um, and I think to me, that is like the most important thing that yellow knife shows people is that like, there's a way it shows you how to be an adult in like, you know, a healthy way. And it shows you kind of that you can, I don't know. It's inspiring to me. Like you can literally do anything. You can start a festival that built a snow castle. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Every everything, every niche that you would find in like, like a Richard Scarry book for kids, you know, like the 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 fireman and the and the teacher and these kinds of things, those those are all well occupied. But then, yeah, you can you can find weird ways of life that you I I, I wouldn't say you can't find elsewhere. I think that there are places, um, and they're all small places, and they're all kind of far away places. Like yeah, that's Haida Gwaii. Yeah. Or um, you know, parts in Newfoundland, or yeah. like I'm—I I don't really know anything between the Maritimes and Alberta, but like I'm sure in like rural Manitoba and stuff, there are, I'm sure there are other of places course. like this. Yeah. But yeah, when you grow up in a city, or when you grow up in a, a even in, in the suburbs or whatever, like you expect that there are four jobs <laughs> in the <laughs> world that are you know that that you that you shoot for, um, and you probably end up doing something that's kind of similar to one of those four jobs. Uh, but when you move to Yellowknife, you're, you're exposed to all these different ways of being. And I think that when people grow up in Yellowknife, they have this massive advantage of seeing adults do different things and do things differently. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, uh, like Lauren McGinnis's kid, I, I really like am envious of that kid growing up and, and seeing like all the things that Lauren gets to see and knowing the people that Lauren sees. Or I mean, I, I, for that matter, um, Alice McCreesh's kids growing up in in the in the uh, in the woodyard, yeah, and just seeing all these sort of um, little niches that you can occupy. Like your 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 mom can be a a, a celebrated Yellowknife artist, and your neighbor can be a freelance radio producer, yeah. and the guy down the street is a 60 year old man who builds a snow castle. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. There, there, there are very few people in, in that neighborhood in the woodyard that do any job that you would find in a Richard scary book. (laughs) Um, so, and, but it's, it's funny because at the same time, the economy of Yellowknife actively discourages those alternative lifestyles because, it will be, okay, so this, I, I'm, I'm going off on like tangents on tangents here, but there's two, um, halves of that. So uh, Yellowknife is so expensive that to be a full-time artist, to be a full-time freelance radio producer, to, to do any of these sorts of, sorts of odd things is yeah. you really have to find something, um, miraculous, like rent in the woodyard that costs $600 a month or $400 a month or whatever it is that people pay for the shacks. Yeah. Um, or you have to find, um, you know, you have to, you have to be setting your own nets and, and, and fishing for your own fish so that you've got 
food for the, for the like you have to be doing these sorts of you have to you have to really dive into the alternative lifestyle yeah. you can't be living in uh you know over behind walmart in range lake um or and all and you know paying twenty five hundred dollars a month to rent a, a place over there while also trying to be a, a full-time artist um so Yellowknife both allows and actively discourages through its high cost of living that these these little niches and 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 crazy cool ways of life. Yeah, and I it's very and it also you have to make the choice not to jump out of that life. You have to make the choice not to jump to the GNWT because mm-hmm. there's always this like you know the golden handcuffs are waiting for you. Yeah, and for so some it, reason, as soon as you jump into the GNWT, someone forces you to move. <laughs> over to Range Lake and and buy a snowmobile and a truck and and stop stop making art which stop is making art. unfair <laughs> they're not true but still no, it's um, absolutely not true um, yeah well and I think perhaps you know as we've kind of progressed into a you know a more you know, in Yellowknife in the 50s, I don't think you would have had this language about cost of living. You would have had the language around, like, you know, it's, all oh, the winters are harsh and we have to survive. And, you know, the supply chain's just, like, we didn't quite think about things in that commodity kind of index as much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you're progressing, like, at the end of the day, like, we all want to have our house and we want it heated and we want to, like, you know, be able to pay the bills without it being 50% of our, you know, income. Yeah. And I, I think as time goes on, that's just going to be a bigger and bigger identity crisis for Yellowknife, you know, without, you know, government intervention and encouragement of those things, which we also seem to not be valuing right now. Encouragement of what things? Uh, well, like we don't, you know, like there, there's tangible things you can do is like we don't have a public art gallery, you know, a public art gallery and investment in artists allows them to kind of live that lifestyle. And, mm-hmm. you know, it also allows them to then be a grow their portfolio so they can go get money from the feds and then live that lifestyle more. You know, there's yeah. we've allowed these things to grow in kind of chaos and that's why they're beautiful. But, you know, I don't know how sustainable that is. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the GNWT is very free with money for, like, I, I got money from the GNWT to buy some lenses for, yeah. for videography work, and that was very easy, and there's a lot of money out there. If you if you just know where it is and apply for it, it's, it's there, yeah. but the, you, like you're saying, there's not a lot of sustainable money, like, there's, there's not a lot of money for, yeah, for an artist, for, like, there's not a lot of sources for, um, for income for an artist. And it, it even sort of says in those grants, like, you can't be paying yourself out of this grant. The Arts Council money, I think, allows for you, when you when you get an Arts Council grant, you can, um, you can pay yourself a little bit out of that. But there's not a lot of sustainable funding for, for artists up here, for sure. And a lot of that comes with infrastructure, like a, like a gallery. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I also would love to see this program of just, like, you know, it, there's so many things you can do to, like, the one-off grants are fine, but I think it's it's also, like, being able to export all of this kind of arts and culture and quirkiness. Like, if you, you do a, port, a profile on an artist from each community that, like, you know, and you try to, like, get that national attention, because, like, just that attention in and of itself is then with, you know, Canada Council of the Arts funding. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I don't yeah, know, we a... seem to not, like 
and I get it because you know art is you know we don't view it as kind of a com it it's very easily quantifiable the economic return we can get from supporting our artists or supporting local businesses and kind of these you know local radio production and I mean journalism there's so many like little side branches mm -hmm. but yeah I think especially with indigenous art and and um I mean, craft, which is craft is often just to use a word that shitty people use to refer to indigenous art that they don't want to pay much for. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I'm sure there's distinctions there that I'm not really aware of. But um, indigenous art, especially in NWT, is like, it's exceptional. It's phenomenal. It's so beautiful. We've got, a, and, and in several different distinct styles from Inuvialuit to Gwich'in to uh, to down here in the Decho like or sorry not in Decho in the North Slave in the Decho like we have all these different styles of art that are equally interesting and no one knows about them outside yeah. of the outside of the you know the real art community and even then I think but like you would have to really dig deep in southern Canada to find a single example of a Gwich'in artist yeah. that's being sold in or sold or, or displayed in in an in art gallery down south but if you go to any gallery in gastown in in vancouver or or in ottawa or in montreal or whatever th they're full of inuit artists yeah and why is that is it is it is it that it's better i don't, don't it's not better their carvings are exquisite they're amazing their prints are also incredible but we have beadwork here that's every bit as beautiful as a, as a print from pangertung yeah we have um Jewelry made by here, right here in Yellowknife, Tanya Larson is making jewelry that's every bit as beautiful as as jewelry coming out of Iqaluit. But we just think that I, I don't know. We 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 art, art's always kind of this way where it's like there there's sort of ebbs and flows of it. But Inuit art has been on top in terms of Canadian Indigenous art, yeah. that and like Haida art for as long as I know, as long as I can remember. And why not the NWT? Like, can we not? Do, do, we, do we not believe in it? I don't think that's the case. I think we just haven't done a good enough job of creating a market for it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I remember this uh, guy telling me he like, makes handcrafted birch bark canoes on Mackenzie, and it's like, they sell for like, he sells them for five grand, and then like an art appraiser being like, this is like a $50,000 piece of art. Like, <laughs> this isn't just like a canoe you're building. Like, yeah. at this point, this is switched into like... Yeah, you buy a canoe at Canadian Tire. <laughs> yeah. Like, this is worth, you know, $50,000, and there should be a market for it. It should yeah. be at auction, and it's just like those supply chains don't exist yeah yeah I, it, maybe that'll come with the the tourism that that we're starting to see now um but i don't necessarily think so i think that the 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 tourists that are coming here from china and, and japan are they're buying um gifts but usually more in the you know 10 to 50 dollar range because they want to buy things for everyone back at home not not buying one beautiful carving one yeah yeah like a a pair of moccasins for five hundred dollars yeah or something like that which you know should be worth two thousand dollars <laughs> like, like, <laughs> yeah for the amount of time you know yeah you get hand hand tanned and scraped moose hide and <laughs> yeah and fur that you caught or that your you know your your nephew caught in the in the Mackenzie Valley somewhere and yeah and beat you know beaded by a, a master elder who's been doing beating their entire life like that yeah that's a it's an incredible piece of art and and it's being sold and people are bargaining for it people are yeah, saying yeah. oh you know i'll give you 
300 bucks for it. And it's like, well, no, that you wouldn't. Yeah. At, at Manny McDonald at, at, um, Denny Naho put this to me where she's like, you know, you wouldn't go to the an art gallery in, in old town Montreal and say, Oh, that painting's worth $3,000. I'll give you 200 for it. Like yeah, yeah. never, but for, for some reason, I'm almost quoting her verbatim here, but for, for some reason people think that that's okay to do in like an art market here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah interesting. Um, this has been like a, an extremely rambling conversation. I feel like all of these podcasts are completely <laughs> rambly. We have about a few minutes left. Uh, which do you got anywhere you, anything you want to take this? Where do you want to take this? Um, no, I mean, I guess I, I, I'd like to touch a little bit more on the journalism in the North. Um, because I feel like, and okay, so this sounds super egotistical and I don't mean it the way that I'm going to say it, but like, I don't think there's many people doing what I'm doing up here. Um, in that I don't think any of their employers are giving them time to work on longer form stuff. Absolutely. There's very few pieces. CBC will run a piece over a thousand words, maybe once every three weeks because they don't have time. They're just feeding goats constantly. They've got to, they got to, they got to, um, you know, get their story on TV. They got to get it on the web. They got to get it on the radio, and then they got to start the next one. And it's just news, 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 and very little investigation. Very little stepping back and saying, "What's this all about?" Um, very little travel. They don't have much of a budget for travel, even though you know they've got all these journalists clustered in Yellowknife, and we have a territory that's you know we've got one person in Inuvik, one person in Hay River, not currently, but soon one person in Hay River, and uh, and a bunch of people in Yellowknife, and that's it. That's all that the communities that get covered. Um, sometimes they'll send people, but they just don't really have much of a budget for it. And then Cabin Radio is this amazing startup here yeah. that's eating CBC's lunch left, right, and center with like a staff of two people, full-time <laughs> people. You know, Ollie and Sarah are the only full-time people there, I think. Um, actually, no, sorry, they, they do have... Like Jesse and Scott as well. No, yeah, no, they're, they're getting more people, and they're doing an amazing uh, Emily job. Just em Emily, of course, yeah, and so they're doing an awesome job there. Uh, with like no budget, yeah. and they're a little scrappy startup, and they just kick the CBC's ass often. Everything, everything is yeah. better. <laughs> and it, so, like CBC, I believe in CBC. I love it. I love it. I you know I used to work there. Um, it's important, and they should they should be proud of what they do. But I wish that some of these publications would give more time to their to their writers to to do what they do best. And up here also does a, a lot of in depth stuff. Sorry, what I mean by no one's doing what I do is there aren't a lot of freelancers up here. Yeah. There are, I, I think that I'm one of the only, if not the only, full-time journalism freelancer in Yellowknife. Um, there's a couple in Whitehorse, uh, maybe one in in Akalit. I don't even know if there's one in Akalit. Like There are so few people up here who are able to afford to live here and, and write about this, these places not under the constraints of the CPC. Yeah, exactly. Well, and if you, I mean, you hustle it, and if you were you, you could eventually you'd be like, I'm sick of just like going from contract to contract. You could jump to CBC, so, you know. potentially. <laughs> which, which, which is yeah, maybe not. which is what a lot of freelancers happens. You know, you have to really value that independence. Yes, and I I I do value that independence, and it's been um, it's been a really good way to write about all the things that that are interesting to me about the north which is a lot of things yeah. from from you know conservation to mining to science 
to indigenous issues and, and indigenous protected areas and these kinds of really cool um, emerging concepts. And I think there's, there's just, there's so many stories up here. There is a wealth and a an embarrassment of riches of stories here. Um, and I hope that someone, uh, I hope, I hope the narwhal hires another Northern reporter. I hope that they, they have someone like me who was sort of regular, a regular for them who writes constantly about the North, just, uh, yeah. and only about the North. I think that that that's so valuable. Yeah, I also really like the narwhal on the nonprofit model. I think this is the future of journalism, and like, you know, it's it's a very sad and depressing thing that we are seeing our community newspapers disappear. Like, that's not a sustainable business model no. anymore. And I don't like we don't seem to value journalism, especially long form journalism. But the nonprofit model is the future. Like, we should have a journalism fund such that there is a community organization that gets funding to do journalism in every single community, you know, like, and it's not that much money. Like they don't, they, maybe they have one full-time staff person yeah. or at least the, like a, you know, the way any other nonprofit works, you come together and you write stories. And if it's only like a, a bulletin, you know, we have community kind of bulletins, but like if you I, enable some funding to do some investigative and you train them a little, it's mm -hmm. just like, People shouldn't have to be martyrs to, to do journalism. You know, you yeah. shouldn't have to be doing this on a, on a shoestring. Mm -hmm. um, I think part of it is people have to be willing to pay for journalism, whether it's supporting a nonprofit model that you like, like the Narwhal, yeah. or like uh, subscribing to to up here, or mm -hmm. or like um, just you know not bitching about paying your taxes to pay for CBC. Um, whatever it is that that you want to, however you want to support journalism, I think that's a good thing to do. But yeah, for sure, I think that having sustainable centralized funding that goes out to communities to say oh are you, you want to start a newspaper here okay here's seventy thousand dollars a year it's yeah it's not that much money but for a place like norman wells that has no paper whatsoever all their news is through facebook they yeah. just had a mayor convicted of cocaine possession or tra trafficking like yeah, it's like why is that they're not a journalist working in that town yeah and like they're, they're and these they're, are they're real major, stories yeah their major industry their only industry essentially uh, the oil industry there is is shutting down and it was it was a it was norman wells was such a big oil industry that they built and in the kennel trail was in, intended to get the oil from from norman wells to wartime alaska yeah. like th that was such a huge oil deposit that it was once big enough to to, to demand this huge road like there is and that industry is going away. Like, Nor Norman Wells needs journalism. A lot of these communities need journalists and journalism, and none of them have it. Absolutely. And, and uh, I feel like we can just, like, one-tenth of the CBC budget, you know, gives all of those communities a journalist who is <laughs> thus more independent, probably more willing to do some investigative pieces. I don't agree with taking away funding from CBC to fund something else, but I think that there are ways that I have a lot of issues with CBC. How about we just Everyone give, it does, a, but... give it a CBC television? Like, oh my Okay, there God. you go. Let's do that. Yeah. I, I like CBC radio. I like CBC journalism yeah. and news. But the bulk of the CBC budget is this television show. That's, it's a, it makes terrible television. I mean, I I I heartily agree with that. <laughs> yes, take the entire CBC budget. But then I think that you should take the entire CBC television budget and roll it back into CBC coverage of other things. Make their platforms ad free so that they're not competing with um, private industry and and nonprofit news. But also, yeah, like to, yeah. Um, definitely take the. Uh, take that budget and put like they they should be doing what happened to their awesome long-form 
radio work that they used to do. Like they, they have a little bit of it here and there. Why are we repeating shows throughout the day? Why can't CBC even afford to do like more yeah. like radio shows that so they're not running two of their flagship shows two or three times during the day? Anyway, I, I think that, that that's that's more of a case for more funding, not less. Um, or maybe maybe redirected funding, because yeah, well, it is kind of crazy that they have these huge resources going to a, a, a platform that fewer and fewer and fewer people are watching and eventually will be gone entirely. Yeah. I'd also like to see CBC maybe... Like, I think I would love to see them kind of do like a... a off like a branding of a investigative journalist group with like perhaps a different name like the wire by you know cbc and it's like this group that's just arm's length has no interference from cbc management that like gets to actually take the time to do these stories you know yeah they have an investigative unit that is tasked solely with with um with investigation and a few you know and, and like the the fifth estate is like that too and they have yeah, certainly yeah. they have branches that are investigative but yeah having like a vertical that like the cut from new york magazine where they are pretty separate from New York Magazine as far as I know and they they just do what they do and they don't exactly. they're not they're not part of New York Magazine in this in, in the same way and um, uh well and especially like in the north like I w the amount of stories that we just don't pick up on and the um, it would just make our democracy that much better in the like the GNWT is like full of issues and like nepotism and so many things that like could be stories and you know i've seen these a tips come across my desk and then we hand them four thousand pages and i know that cbc journalist is like i don't got time for this like you know and there's good information out there it's just we need to pay people to have the time to do it mm -hmm. yeah well anyone who's uh thinking that the not enough information is getting across to reporters is free to email me <laughs> jimmy at the narwhal.ca <laughs> um uh, and if anyone thinks that uh, they have an issue with their government, free to email their future MLA, Rylan Johnson. Uh, Jimmy, <laughs> thanks for coming on the Scandamaniac podcast. I, I'm going to miss you. I'm also going to miss Megan. You're taking our librarian. It's a dick move. But uh, <laughs> yeah, no, you, you, your journalism, I really look forward to it in the future. I'm, I hope you continue to still do some Northern pieces, but it's a, it's a big loss. For, uh, I, I, I think I'll keep... An eye on the north. I think I'll keep either coming here or at least, oh, I mean, hopefully not only, but at least writing about this place from from down there because it's there's there's so much up here. There's so many stories here. Yeah, we haven't even begun to tell the stories of a lot of communities and a lot of people. Um, can you do me a favor and ring us the ship's bell to sign us off? Right. Signing off from See dispatches from the Scandamaniac. <laughs>